Thanks, Matt. Yeah, that was a uh, yeah, wonderful reflection, but also a, a sobering reality of um, where we are and what um, the condition of, of the world and the world in which we live and the call of God on our lives. So um, let's not just hear what Matt said. Let's really think about it, pray about it. It's easy for us to say, hey, yeah, that's the, the 20-somethings or the 30-somethings who ought to go or the teenagers who ought to go, but um, really think about, is God placing that burden in your heart? I mean, the commission has been given to us all, and either we go or we send faithfully to the point where if I could go, I would, but I can't, and God's not called me to, therefore I will send. Either we will go, we will send, or we'll be disobedient to the Great Commission. So let's not be disobedient. Um, let's hear the call of God, and whatever that looks like in our given situation, let's do our best in order to uh, see God, Jesus' last dream, uh, be realized in our lives. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, Esther chapter 2. We're going to jump right in because in our, in our first service, I... Um, yeah, we went a little bit, I went a little bit long, and so we're going to dive right in. If you remember, if you weren't here last week, we're in the book of Esther. Esther takes place in the Persian Empire. Uh, the book of Esther, the events happened between 483 to 473 B.C. That's the reign of, of, uh, of King Xerxes of Persia. What we saw as we began last week was the first half of chapter 1, the introduction, the Jews are living in Persia. So they are the people of God living in a world that is crazy, that has a bunch of idols, that has a king set up as his own, as the God of the people, and there's a lot of antagonism towards the life of, of, of God and the life of faith in the hearts of the Jews. There were some Jews who went back to Jerusalem about... It would have been about uh, 50 years earlier probably, but the remainder of the Jews stayed in Persia and were an oppressed minority living within the Persian Empire. The first thing that we saw, the first half of the chapter was showing the vastness and the greatness of this king that they worshipped as their god, and so the whole point was to say, wow, it's great to live life as a Persian in the Persian Empire. But the second half of the chapter, starting with the introduction of his wife, Queen Vashti, changed everything to get us to think, well, maybe life in Persia isn't that great after all. After having this 187-day party with all the opulence and all-you-can-eat food and all-you-can-drink open bar, um, the last day of the feast, he calls for his wife, who was lovely in form and in features. She was beautiful, and she had the body that rocks the party. And so he wanted to bring her out in order to really get the men riled up to say, yeah, it's even better to be a Persian. A complete objectifying of his very own wife. And so flags go up. Maybe this king isn't the king that we thought he ought to be. And so he calls for Vashti to come out without anything but her royal crown on, and she refuses, and so he says, Vashti, you're fired as queen, and so she gets deposed. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, wow, the whims of this king dictate everything within this kingdom. And so we pick up in chapter 2, and what it doesn't tell us is what history tells us at about 480. So 483 B.C. is where Xerxes takes up uh, the reign from his father Darius. In about 480 B.C., King Xerxes leads his people, the Persians, into an attack of Greece in order to take the Greek territories as part of his own. This is a war that became famous for one particular battle, the Battle of Thermopylae. Has anyone heard of the Battle of Thermopylae? Okay, a couple of us have. I was thinking a lot of the middle schoolers, uh, the middle schoolers have because in the morning service, that's the ones who raise their hand. The Battle of Thermopylae, this is what's happening. The Persians have, and some people say that millions of people, but I think the better estimate was they had about 100,000 people, and they're going to attack into Greece. And there's this narrow passageway that they've got to get into, but there's about 7,000 Greek soldiers who have blocked the passageway, and they're, they're uh, preventing the Persians from getting in. If the Persians get through this, then they've got unlimited access into Greece, and they'll win the battle. So after several days of this kind of a standoff, one of the Greeks becomes a traitor and tells the Persians, hey, if you go around, there is a narrow passageway that you can get onto the backside of the Greek enemies, uh, of the Greeks' armies, and you can attack them from behind. So when word gets to the Greek leadership that there was a traitor and that the Persians know the backdoor route, knowing that if they... Uh, don't find help in time, they're going to be destroyed and the Greeks are going to be goners. He sends everyone back to fortify the home front and leaves a small handful of 300 men 
the fiercest and most fearless men led by the Spartan king Leonidas to fight against the 100,000 or whatever many Persians. And for several days, they hold them off until finally the 300 are defeated. The Persians march into Greece. But by that time, the Greek soldiers have fortified the city for after a two-year battle, two-year war, the Greeks hold up against the Persians and the Persians go back to Persia, a defeated enemy. And so Esther chapter 2 picks up here with Xerxes having lost the war to Greece. About two-thirds of his treasury has been depleted. He's discouraged. He's depressed. He's saddened. And this is where Esther chapter 2 picks up. So let's look at Esther chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 18 here. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Fascinating stuff here. Um, Esther chapter 2 we're going to read starting in verse 1. The true story of Esther, first time she's introduced in the book, and this is God's word. It says, later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal assistants proposed, hmm, let, uh, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And in the no-brainer statement of the chapter, it says, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. This is one of God's people named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The girl who was also known as Esther was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty, treatments, and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came, To go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she'd go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she'd go there and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. The turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of, the un- of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. This is God's word. What's happening here? Well, uh, the search is on for a new queen. He comes back from the war defeated and discouraged. He's depressed. In fact, Herodotus, the great historian, says that that war, the battle of Thermopylae and the war that ensued, was a turning point in his life. After that, he just plunged himself headlong into an abyss of sensual pleasure. So he comes back 
<clears throat> the king is sitting on his throne, and he's not doing well. And so people around him are afraid. And what do his royal attendants say? He said, hey, uh, what could cheer up a depressed man than maybe finding another woman, just like the one that he had deposed of several years earlier? And so they said, let's make a plan. And he said, that's a great idea. I would like that. Two things that we see, because there are a lot of lies that the Persian Empire promotes that we still, to this day, believe. And we've bought into it. And there's a counterculture movement that is rising up that needs to rise up to show that the teachings of the world and the teachings of Persia are not consistent with the teachings of Scripture. The first thing that I want to say, just the truth about humans and the truth about heroes, the first thing is that every person, okay, get this, every person was born to be loved, not used. Okay, every person was born to be loved, not used. King Xerxes is in need of a new queen because he's gotten rid of his old queen. He's looking for a queen because his attendants think, well, this will make him happy. This will cheer him up. And a happy king is a generous king. A happy king is a kinder king. An angry king is an impulsive king, and he does things like get rid of his wife. We don't want that to happen. We want our king to be happy. And so you may have heard that this is a story, the fairy tale story of how an orphaned Jewish virgin becomes the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. That's not what this is. This is no Cinderella story, no fairy tale story here. That's not what this is. Nor is it a, hey, uh, this is the bachelor in Persia. Hey, if you'd like to be a contestant on the bachelor in Persia, you want to become the queen of Persia, then uh, make a video and, and post it on Instagram and hashtag Persian queen or whatever. That's not what this is. Not some voluntary thing. Fill out an application, bring it to the Citadel of Susa with a picture of yourself and we'll call you. Don't call us. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is more a mixture of the Liam Neeson movie Taken meets Memoirs of a Geisha meets Slumdog Millionaire. We're talking Persian-level human trafficking of young teenage girls. I don't know how the VeggieTales portrayed this part of it, but I don't think you can do this in a very healthy, wholesome way. What's happening is there are 127 regions, provinces under the domain of King Xerxes, an area the size, roughly the size of these United States of America. And so commissioners are sent forth. And if you're a looker and if you're a teenage girl, right, you got married around 15, 16 years old. So if you're 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you're still single, you've never been with a man before, then you are susceptible. Imagine being the homeowner of a home where a young girl lives. You're daughter, your sister, your cousin, your niece, whomever it is, and a commissioner from Xerxes bursts into your house and takes your daughter, takes the girl of your house and says, Xerxes needs her. You know that as you say your tearful goodbyes that you will never see this girl ever again in her life. That's happening to Esther. It's happening to what uh, Josephus, the historian, says 400 girls were taken uh, another historian named Patton says 1,500 were taken. Tim Keller, modern-day preacher, says 10,000 were taken. But whatever the number, the, 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 the fact remains that these girls are being forcibly taken from their homes, kidnapped in a cosmic act of human trafficking in order that they might become slaves in the harem of King Xerxes. A fairy tale this is not. And so they get taken, and they go to the citadel of Susa, and for a year, the picture that you have here is these people are being purified for one year in order that they might meet their divine. No purification necessary, no preparation necessary for their king, but a year's worth in order that they might be acceptable to the god of Persia, Xerxes. And so for a year, they go through beauty treatments, cosmetics, cover up their blemishes, lotion, soften the skin, make them smell nice. All for what? What is that for? Why have they been ripped from their homes, from their families, from their fathers, from their uncles, from their mothers, from their siblings? Why have they been ripped from their families, their futures taken from them to a loveless life? Why? In order that they might spend one night with the king with the prospect of perhaps becoming the queen of Persia, which, if you ask Vashti, is not a royal proposition. It's not the good life. 
It's a lifeless, non-romantic, figurehead position of a, for a woman who is to be exploited at the whims of the king. Basically, your life is ending if a commissioner comes and gets you. That's it. It's over. So what happens? You spend the night with a king. You lose your virginity to a man that you do not love and to a man who does not love you in return. All he wants, he wants to see your face, he wants to see your body, and he wants to do something to you that ought not be done by anybody other than your husband. Wow. And so they go in one night with the king and back into the harem. What happens after that night is done? Do they get to go back home? No. <laughs> because the greatest fear of King Xerxes with these women is that some woman in the middle of the night in the Persian kingdom will be with another man, and she says to another man, you are better than King Xerxes. And so he would never let them be with another man for the rest of their lives. Here's what's happening. These teenage girls are being forcibly ripped from their homes to be used by the king to be deposited into a harem, never to be touched by a man again unless Xerxes calls her by name. Probably wouldn't happen, but confined to a life amongst a harem, never knowing love, never knowing romance, having all of her hopes and dreams for a future ripped out from her the moment she's ripped from her family's arms. That's life in Persia. That's Esther's world. But you know, Xerxes is an equal opportunity. Xerxes, it's not just the girls, it's the boys also. What happens? You get, you get taken from your home, you come to the citadel of Susa, you come to the king's palace, and then you get entrusted to he guy, the king's, what? Verse 3, the king's eunuch. After you spend the night with the king, then you get sent back to uh, uh, another guy named Shashgaz, <laughs> Shashgaz, in verse 14, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the concubines. If you remember this correctly, you will know that in chapter 1, the word eunuch is also mentioned. In fact, in the entire Bible, the word eunuch appears 21 times, 21 times, nine of them are in the book of Esther. What in the world is a eunuch and why is that so significant? A eunuch is a young boy, a boy, a teenager perhaps, who has been castrated. That means his private parts have been cut off of him. Why would they do that? They, they still do this in some places. Um, they do this in, in some places in Africa. They do this in, in India. Uh, they do it in some, for, for, for some people, the reason they castrate boys is so that they can sing and reach higher notes. This is to have male sopranos. They do that. They castrate boys and make them eunuchs for that reason. But in the Persian Empire, that's not why it wasn't about singing and reaching shrill notes. It was about protecting the king. He knew that if he's got a harem of women, okay, this is uh, women that he would just at his beck and call. Whenever he called them, they would come and they would pleasure him. This is what the harem was. He knew that he needed men in charge of the harem to protect him and his interests. However, he could not risk the possibility of a woman of the harem falling in love with another man or with a man abusing or taking advantage of one of his harem members. And so he couldn't just find any old guy. He had to find someone who he would turn into a eunuch in order that they would protect the king and be no threat to him or to the women who resided in the harem. Herodotus says that every year, every year, Xerxes would take 500 boys and he would castrate them and turn them into eunuchs to serve his purposes. Imagine that, a boy growing up in the Persian Empire with all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your longings. Maybe he has a girl who he's, he set his eyes on but taken in the middle of the night in order that he might be castrated and become a eunuch. Because in the Persian Empire, if you're a girl, all you're worthy for is to be used by the king, your beauty, your looks. If you're a boy, all you're good for is to be used by the king in whatever way he sees fit. But here's something that I, man, this is crazy to me. Every eunuch that shows up in, in the book of Esther, okay, every eunuch that shows up, it doesn't just say, now there was a certain eunuch, or a eunuch then went, 
or he was in charge, placed in the charge of the eunuch who took care of the harem. It doesn't say that. Every eunuch, at least that I've seen, so well, definitely so far, every eunuch is given a name. It's, it's, it's he guy here, it's Shash, Gaz here. In chapter 1, it says there are seven eunuchs. Right? He commanded seven eunuchs. Chapter 1, this is verse 10. Seven eunuchs who served him, and then it lists their names. Me, human, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Why? I think in one, in one sense, they's doing this to, in order to show the historical reliability. that you could, if, if these people were living, if you know who they are, these are the, these are the people. But what he's also saying, I think what he's saying, is though the empire does not recognize these eunuchs in the annals of God, these eunuchs are not nameless, faceless, castrated little boys. They're people like Bigtha and Mehuman. They have names, and they've got value, and they've got dignity, and they've got worth beyond what the king demands from them. What's the point? Here's, here's the point, and I've just been, been all of this to get to this one simple thought, that every person was born to be loved, not to be used. Even the eunuchs of Persia, even the virgins who are ripped from their homes of Persia were born and created to be loved, not to be used. Aren't there people in our world who need to know that this is true of them also? Aren't there people in here who need to know this also, who feel like your worth and your value, your validity comes because of what you do, not simply because of who you are, that you are a child made by God in order to be loved, that you are more than your looks, you're more than your body, you're more than your brains, you're more than what you offer to people. You were born to be loved because God made you in his image and you are made in his image, loved and beautiful, meant to be loved. There's a song, uh, we don't, I don't know. I don't know if we have American English songs like this that really speak blessing to one another. But there's a Korean song that sometimes our Korean congregation sings, and a lot of Korean churches sing it. It goes like, 당신은 사랑받기 위해 태어난 사람, 당신의 삶 속에서 그 사랑받고 있지요. Shall I keep going? No, I'll stop. The song basically says, You were created to be loved, to receive love. Right, the, from the beginning of the world, God created this world in a cosmic act of love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian love was so great that in love he created. Just like mom and dad, uh, parents love each other so much that in a creative act of love they have children. This is creation. In a creative cosmic act of love, Father, Son, Spirit, create the world, people, in order that they might receive the love that's being shared amongst the Godhead from eternity past. And so in a creative act of love, that's what the song is saying. From the creation of the world, all of this is an act of God's love. And even now, as we sing this song, you are a recipient of that kind of a love. And in this song, when I was in Virginia, I was 24, 20, uh, 24 years old. I was taking this discipleship training course at our school, at our church. It was through uh, Youth with a Mission. And for 12 weeks, three nights a week for four hours a night. We would gather Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and speakers would fly in from throughout the states and from uh, Europe, and they would come, and they would teach for like a couple hours. We would sing songs. We would pray. And there are about 50 to 60 Korean-speaking people there, and then there are like five to seven of us English-speaking people who are there. And as we would sing songs of praise before the teacher would come and, and, and lecture, one of the songs that we'd sing every day, so we probably sang this 36 times throughout that 12-week period, every day at the start of class, we would sing that song, and we would sing it to one another. Not a worship song to God, but a song of blessing to one another. And we would sing that song. Now, here's, the, here's where it got really weird. The song itself is beautiful, but uh, where it got weird was uh, the, the leader said, okay, you need to go find someone in this room and hold hands with them. And look them in the eye and sing this song to them. And, and I guess, you know, this is what they would do. They would do like this. 
So the Korean-speaking people in there, they were loving this. Like, this was like their dream come true. Like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. I've longed to do this all of my life. But for us English-speaking people, like, people like us, like, imagine that. Like, that's mad weird, right? That's awkward. I don't, I don't even do this with Allah. I don't hold hands with her and look in her eyes and sing to her. Like, this is weird, let alone some, like, stranger that I barely know. And so all of us English-speaking people, we would dip out when that song came on. Right? We just like, hey, it's on, let's go. And so we'd go. So for like a couple of weeks, we'd do that. And my friend Sam, he's like kind of, he kind of like a thug life in his past. He's like, yo, Larry, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do this. I've got to get out of here. So he would leave and he would hang out in the bathroom. And so we'd talk about it, have these conversations, like five English-speaking dudes sitting in the bathroom talking. Is it done yet? Looking and peeking. And then we'd go back in. So one day, it was probably like the third or fourth week into it, where that, that song was being sung, and all my friends had dipped already, and I, I, I think I, I got the memo late, I was in worship, or whatever it was, and the song came on, and, you know, the music would play, and so I, I started walking out, and the leader, Korean-speaking guy, Elder Weed, like 65 years old, he's like, Ani, David Kim, David Kim, as he saw me walking out, I was like, oh, snap. Yeah, if you're one, there's like 60, and mainly like 40 and older people, and there's like a handful of 25, like everyone knows who we are. We don't know who they are. David Kim, where are you going? I was like, bathroom. And he's like, no, no, so they don't do like that. They do like, he does like this. So I got trapped in there. And so they sang that song, singing that song, and this one uh, elderly lady, her name was Kwan Taeyun, Kwan Sanin, Mrs. Kwan, elderly lady. She came and she found me. It was something about like elderly Korean ladies love single Korean men, it's just in a motherly way, right? They, they love it. So, oh, so beautiful. So like, you're like my son. So she grabbed my hands. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like so painful. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> She's like staring. I'm like looking at the ceiling, I'm like looking all around, I'm like, my, I'm like this is literally when my legs are like going back and forth, and she knows it's, it's awkward. I'm like doing like, oh, you know, this is the first verse going to end so we can switch to someone else, I can go to the bathroom. And so finally, I just, in the midst of looking all around, finally I had to look at her for just one second, I looked at her, and her eyes were closed as tightly as you could close your eyes, and she was just like weeping. And she was singing you, David Kim, were made to be loved. And even now, this act of singing this song is God's way of showing you how loved you are. It was still super awkward. And I still wanted to bolt every time. But there was something in my heart that really resonated with that song. Maybe there was something in me that felt like I really need to know that that's for me that I'm more than what I offer to people. It's me that you and I were made to be loved and every person who's ever been born into this planet was born to be loved. Doesn't matter who they are. That's what causes men like Pastor Lee in Korea to start something called the baby box so that women who have children who don't want them instead of having an abortion or instead of leaving them on the street to die could put them inside of this box that is checked and climate controlled so that every morning he checks and rescues countless babies whom the world thinks are not worthy of being loved because there's no use for them, because they're handicapped, because they're unplanned, whatever it might be. See, don't we often buy into the lies of this world that says a person is only worth something if they're useful to us? You know, we often, we often use people rather than love them, even within the church. When we objectify people, when you look at someone for what they can give you, this person could add a lot to my life, to my ministry, to my house church, to my reputation. We use people rather than love them when we gossip about them. Ooh. It's just gossip. No big deal. I'm just telling what happened. Ignoring the fact that it's their wounds that you are parading about in front of people so that you might get some perverse pleasure because you think you're better than them or because you want to somehow cut them down in the eyes of other people. I'm just saying it to be nice and kind because you ought to know. But really in your heart of hearts, you're using them you're not loving them. Wow, we use people rather than love them in a lot of ways in our world today too. And when we do, we live the ethic of the Persians, not the ethic of Scripture. 
The first thing we need to understand, friends, about the truth of people is that every person was born to be loved, not to be used. Don't go in looking to relationships for what you can get out of it, but how can I love this person? As you walk out of this worship service today, how can I love, not look to use people, but to love them? It's the first thing that we see. Truth about people, everyone made to be loved, not used. Second thing that we see, the truth about heroes is that every hero is both weak and wounded. We're going to see this in Esther. We're going to see this in, in Mordecai. But I think there are a couple kinds of people that human nature, we as people, have a difficult time allowing to be weak and wounded. One of these people, I think, is the person whose funeral we are attending. We have a difficult time talking about the weaknesses in someone who has just passed away. Maybe that's our way of grieving or dealing with them. Maybe it's our way of, of, of creating a legacy. Maybe we feel we have regret, and so on the last thing that they might potentially hear, I want to be nice and say, well, they were awesome. We have a way of magnifying their strengths and nullifying their weaknesses at funerals, don't we? Another one is the person that we want to date, that nobody wants us to date, the person we're infatuated with. They have no wrong in our eyes. Even though other people see these glaring weaknesses, we don't see it. Oh, you know what? Yeah, he's a, yeah, I don't know, whatever it is. But we have a way of glossing over the failures and the flaws and the weaknesses and the wounds of people that we want people to approve of in a relationship romantically. But the third kind of people, and this is, this is where we get to here, the third kind of people I think we have a hard time allowing to be weak and wounded are the heroes of our lives. We want them to be perfect. We don't want them to have kryptonite. That's why every kid thinks my dad can beat up your dad <laughs> on the playground, even if their dad is, looks like me. They still believe that because daddy's their hero, and they don't want to believe that daddies are weak. And we don't want to believe our heroes are weak and wounded either. But there comes a point in time, and this is what sociologists say, fourth grade, huge. I've said this before, fourth grade, crucial year. Because in, it's in fourth grade that we begin to realize that life isn't the idealistic world that we think it was supposed to be like. The fairy tale mirage gives way to reality. And then we begin to see people for who they really are. I remember it was around that time when I began to see the weaknesses and failures of my parents. I remember the first time I saw uh, my favorite baseball players do something bad and get caught and put in the newspaper for something other than something good. I was shocked. I was like, oh, my goodness. And it was even worse when it came to church heroes. Not church heroes necessarily, but Bible heroes. The first man, David, my parents were like, oh, David was a good king. He's like best king of Israel. That's why we name you David. You know, David, good one. Like, oh, not, we didn't call you Saul. We call you David, right? Here's David, right? The first time I heard that David committed adultery, I was like, what is adultery? When they told me that it is to have a relationship with someone who's not your wife, I was like, oh my, who did that? They said, David. I said, which David? They said, King David. I said, which King David? The King David. I was like, there must have been another one. Had to have been another one. There's no way that that King David could be that. And he killed her husband? What? David, that's crazy. That's, that's foolishness. And then Abraham, the father of our faith, that man was a bad man too. That dude took his wife and twice to kings of other nations and said, hey, you know what? You're so beautiful, Sarah, that if they know that we're married, they're going to do something bad to me. So just pretend you're my sister and you can go ahead and, and, and have a relationship with them just for a little bit and then we'll come back and all will be good again. What? The father of our faith was a bad husband. That's crazy. And then John the Baptist, like Jesus said, of people born to women, no one, no one greater in this world than John the Baptist. John the Baptist. This cat had camel hair, locusts. He ate locusts with honey for like breakfast. That's crazy stuff. That's how he lived. But then at the end of his life, before he, was, he got his head chopped off, he was sitting in jail, and he's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Go ask Jesus, were you were you really the one? Like, were you the Messiah, or did I get it wrong? Because if you're really the Messiah, then you ought to do something and get me out of jail. Or it shouldn't be like this. The greatest was doubting at the end of his life. 
And so I think that's why I'm drawn to people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember those three cats who were in the fire a couple weeks ago? I'm drawn to people like that because, hey, you don't see anything bad about them. They didn't eat the royal food. They didn't compromise themselves. They said, even if I die, hey, God can rescue us from the fire from your hand, but even if he doesn't, we ain't going to bow down and worship your gods. And they went into the fire, and the Lord protected them. That's why we're drawn to Daniel. Into the lion's den he goes. But the lion decides on that particular, hungry lions are on a Daniel fast because they eat everything but Daniel. That's crazy. That's why part of us are drawn to the Daniels and the Shadrach meat who are living in exile and are doing it right. And so when you hear about Esther, we hear about Esther in a similar way. Okay, here's Esther. A child of God in the midst of the exile. She's beautiful. She's virtuous. She risks her life for the sake of her people. But that's not what we see in Esther chapter 2. Look at what it says, the introduction to Esther in verse 7. It says, the girl who was also, okay, well, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, much younger cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up Because she had no father, neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. What is that? Okay, so her name is Hadassah, Jewish name, but no one knew her Jewish name because they only knew her as Esther, which is a derivative of the the Persian goddess, Babylonian goddess, Babylonian goddess, Ishtar, the goddess of sex. And the name Esther, and you know names are powerful as an identifier of a person. The name Esther means hidden because her identity as a child of the covenant of the promises of God remains hidden during her time in Persia. Esther is not Daniel. She's not the one who's going to stand up for what she believes. No one knows she's a Jew. No one knows she's a child of God. No, no, no one knows who the, the God that she worships is. She's a flawed. And not only that, hey, Mordecai. Mordecai is her, is her cousin, who basically her uncle, who raises her because she was left as an orphan. Mom and dad died. It says in, in, in verse 5, now, in the citadel of Susa, so in the high point of power in Persia, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning a Jewish Jew named Mordecai, son of Jairus, son of Shimei, son of Kish, been carried off into exile. He was there, and he had a cousin named Hadassah. What does it say? It says, now, there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, basically in the, in the seat of power in the Persian Empire, was sitting a Jew, basically, what does it say? Mordecai, the name Mordecai, a worshiper of Marduk, the Babylonian deity. Mordecai and Esther did not tell people of their Jewish identity. In fact, Mordecai commanded Esther not to tell anybody that she was one of God's people. Yeah, she was probably old enough to make her own choices, but she didn't. But even before that, nobody knew that she was a Jew. What does that mean? It means she ate the food. It's, well, it even says here, the special food that was given to her. Uh, the girl pleased Hegai. It says in, in verse 9, she ate the food of the Persians, meaning she didn't remain kosher. She didn't eat the foods that the Jews were supposed to eat. For all intents and purposes, Mordecai and Esther had sold out to the Persians. And they kept their identity as the people of God hidden. Nobody knew. They thought they, were, they passed for Persians. And herein lies our great temptation also, to be Christians living in the midst of an empire that lives against, goes against the values of God, but for us, for all intents and purposes, to look nothing different from the ways of the world. Isn't this our temptation? When you go to school, okay, when you go to work, when you go to the store, are we like Daniel standing up and saying, I'm a child of God. I'm not going to follow the ways of this world. I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand apart. I'm going to do things differently. The way I conduct my business, the way that I love the unlovable, the way that I treat the pariahs at school, the way that I treat the kids who are bullied at work, 
or school, wherever it is that I go, I live a different kind of an ethic. Isn't it the temptation of Mordecai and Esther, the same temptation for us when God's calling us to shine for us to go and hide? Here's what I, here's what pre-fourth grade me would have wished, that Esther a child of God in the midst of the exile, an heir to the covenant promises, a daughter of Abraham. This is what I wish she had done as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of exile. Here's what I wish that she would have done. Esther, you rise up into the king's bedroom and you say, with all due respect, sir, I have respect for you in the authority that God has given to you and the position that you have as the king of this empire. But I serve the one true and living God, the God of scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I cannot bow down to the idols of this world. I cannot have this compromising relationship, this compromising night with you. I know that this does not please you, yet if I have a choice to please God or please my king, I need to please God. And I know that he's able to deliver me from this night, but even if he does not, I will not compromise my values, my God, and my body with you for a night with the king. but she doesn't. (laughs) Instead, she loses her virginity to a man who was not her husband. And she ends up marrying a Gentile right during the same time that the prophets are speaking against the intermarrying of Jews with those of other religions. Esther is not our fairy tale princess queen, my friend. She's not. Despite what your children's Bible and veggie tales might tell you, she's not the Cinderella story of ancient Persia. She's a girl like many of us who have given our hearts to the things of this world while trying to hide our God given identity and struggling to live out our faith in the midst of a world that fights tooth and nail against everything that we believe in. And quite frankly, the gift of God to us is that the Bible does not gloss over the moral, spiritual, and ethic failures that are found in this heroine, Esther, and in this hero, Mordecai. Because the reality is, when I heard about David and Abraham and John the Baptist and their failures, I lost my religion. I said, this is not possible. But in seeing Esther and seeing those failures, I find grace. Because I am so much more like Esther than I am like Daniel. I'm so much more like David, the failure, than I am like Joseph, the one who ran from sin. And the gift of God to the church trying to live in this broken world is that there are heroes, but every one of them is weak and every one of them is wounded. It's easy for me to bash Esther until I begin to see the humanity within her. Because the reality is not only was she a spiritually compromised person in need of repentance, but there were wounds that cut deep into her heart. What is it like to be a young girl and to lose not only your mother, but your father as well? What is that like to grow up in that void, in that vacuum, and then to be adopted by an older cousin who doesn't model the faith for you, who sells out to the kingdom of Persia, who tells you to deny yourself, who says you're only worthy because you go do whatever they say, be beautiful and go please the king and do something. What is that like to be exploited by the people in authority in your life? What is it like for you to be snatched from your uncle's home, from your cousin's home? What is it like for you to be, the only thing that describes her is that she's lovely and form and feature, and that's what everybody knew about. What was it, what was it like to just be seen as a pretty face and a lovely body in the eyes of people? What was that like to be taken advantage of? In that way, you see, every hero has both weaknesses and wounds. And the grace of God in that is so real to us because this is us.
the heroes that we look at, they'll fail us. They'll disappoint us. Your earthly heroes, your parents, your leaders will fail you. They will. It's because we're all weak and we're all wounded. That's the reality. So temper your expectations. This is life. Okay, this is life then in Persia, that all of us, we're sinful, we're compromised, we're hurting, we're broken, but we're fighting to live life in this world for Christ. We don't have Meshach and Abednego's friends who are what She didn't. She didn't. She didn't. We need to have people like that in our lives. But she was all alone as a young girl exploited. And yet we will see that the story of God remains to be written and it runs right through the lives of broken people like you and me who are desperately in need of grace. Here's the reality, not only of heroes, but of people. There are not two categories, the good ones and the bad ones. Even the good ones and the broken ones. The reality, here are the categories. There are the bad ones, the broken ones, and then there's Jesus. We're all bad. We're all broken. We're all weak. We're all wounded. But there is a hero who will never fail us. There is a God who was powerful, the lion that roars. The lion of Judah sitting on the throne, all powerful, almighty, just speaks a word and nations are formed. The world is formed. Oceans stop and oceans come at the mention of the word from the king. That's our God, perfect in every way. The light of the world and yet he entered into our brokenness and became weak. What the Apostle Paul says, Jesus, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking in appearance the form of a man, became a servant, and gave his life for us. The prophet Isaiah, a couple hundred years before the events of Esther's time, wrote, and he said, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we find healing. There is a hero, a true hero named Jesus who is perfect and healthy and beautiful and amazing beyond measure, worthy of all praise, but willingly he was a hero who became weak and wounded in order that the weak and wounded might find grace and find strength in his name. As you read through the book of Esther, let's take off our glasses and see her for who she is, because in seeing her, we see a mirror to our own souls. We are weak, and we are wounded, and we're broken, but we're desperately trying to live life in this world that objectifies and that uses and says people only have value if they can contribute something to the needs of other people. But instead, we see this book of Esther for what it really is, and we see not a good person doing a good thing, but a broken person doing God's thing. And through these pages, dripping off of every page of the book of Esther and throughout Scripture is grace for the unworthy. It's grace for the broken. It's grace for the weak. It's grace for you and me. And that's what we need more than anything else. Let's pray together. It's a lot of stuff that we see today that runs parallel to life in Persia. Maybe you feel weak and you feel wounded and you wonder, can God do anything with my life? The Spirit of God says, look up, look up, look up, look up even higher and see Jesus, the true hero. Putting your trust in him will free you from the need to try to be perfect, to try to be the person that you could not be. The only kind of person that changes for good is the person who knows that even if he or she never changes, that God will still love him or her. And when you know that deep in your heart that you were created to be loved, made to be loved, then you'll be surprised at how much you actually do change not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. Maybe your prayer today can be, Lord, help me to know how loved I am. Help me to look to Jesus. Maybe for others of us in here, we have used people instead of loved them. 
It's a conviction in our hearts that in a lot of ways I'm no different from King Xerxes. Father, have mercy on me. Cleanse me. Purify me in order that I might love you and live for you rightly. Let's pray. Let's respond to the word of God for a couple moments. Just praying to the Lord God. What is it that you want to confess to him? Let's pray. Sealing the word of God in our hearts. Asking the word to become flesh in us. Let's pray and then we'll continue on. Father in heaven, we pray that this morning you would liberate some of us from the images that we think Christianity is, maybe from the images that we feel like we need to portray, that everything is good, that I've got it all together, and that I don't struggle. Father, help us to look into our own hearts to see what you see. Not just someone who keeps messing up and messing up and messing up, but a little kid, maybe whose innocence has been stripped and you see the wounds within us. A little girl just dying, desperate to be loved. A little boy wishing that someone could tell him that he's worthy not because of his performance, what he does, his grades, but just because he's the son of his daddy, the son of his mom. Father, help us to see in ourselves what you see. And if it's a sinful, erring child, Lord, help us to go to you for repentance. And if it's a broken, hurting, I only have 50% of myself to give to you, child, and that we would go to you for healing in order that we would receive from you all that the gospel promises. Father, we are in need of grace, and it comes to us, not because we're good, but because we acknowledge we need you. Help us. And maybe part of that weakness and part of our woundedness is that we try to use people instead of loving them. I'm sure that was Xerxes, both weak and wounded, didn't know any better to soothe a broken heart. Father, forgive us for the ways that we've done that. Lead us today even to people who need one, our forgiveness for us to ask forgiveness and two, who are in need of your love. May we be the incarnation of that love today, this week, to people in need. Thank you so much for loving us. Each of us remind us we were made, created, born, to be loved. And may we bring that love to others as well. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.